Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello, and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Dr. Michael Tout, a professor in the Faculty of Music and professor in the Faculty of Medicine at University of Toronto. He is endowed by the Canadian federal government as the Canada Research Chair in Music, Neuroscience and Health. He has published over 250 scientific publications and is a fellow of the British Royal Society of Medicine. And we will be discussing how listening to favorite music improves brain plasticity and cognitive performance in people with Alzheimer's disease. When I think of accessing familiar music, one of our projects for a Native American outreach program comes to mind. We recently produced a CD in collaboration with Canyon Records called Walk With Me, where we cultivated personally meaningful songs and styles specifically for people in tribal communities of the Southwest. And so it featured, you know, um, traditional spiritual songs. It featured chicken scratch music. And the idea was really to equip caregivers and give them a tool to tap into music to accomplish different goals of care. Personally, meaningful music can just, it takes you on a journey. You know, usually it makes you feel good. But what we're going to learn today is that it can actually improve brain, brain plasticity and cognitive performance in people with Alzheimer's disease. The Walk With Me CD is so powerful. And that, and through many of our life enrichment programs, we have experienced the power of music through music therapy and singing, and especially those songs that tell the story of people's lives. And it is such a privilege to have Dr. Tout discuss the fascinating research about improving brain plasticity and cognitive performance. Welcome, Dr. Tout. Thank you for joining our conversation. Uh, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Before we learn more about the research you have done, I want to learn a little bit more about you. Could you tell us about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community? Yeah, this is uh, a bit, uh, I'll try to make it as short as possible because it was a fairly long journey in many ways, but I'm, uh, I'm, my background, my training background, my educational background is I'm a professional musician, but I'm also a trained neuroscientist. And so I became interested uh, during my doctorate in music. I became interested in brain research, uh, brain processes that are connected to music. And I saw interesting translations from basic music perception and music cognition even music creation to how that could not just train high level musicianship, but it could also be useful on the other end of the spectrum where it can music 
based interventions can actually sort of retrain some brain function or support neurodevelopmental brain function. So that's how I became very interested in that. That was not the initial part of my life as a professional because I played the violin for years and years on stages. But uh, then this, uh, my doctorate then sort of guided me into this crossover between uh, music as a science and neuroscience. And we actually started researching rhythm first as a time cue to help people with movement disorders like Parkinson's stroke to coordinate their movements and their walking ability better. And we can address that maybe a little later. But that gave me and my research group an idea that there's something in music perception that actually translates into functional rehabilitative outcomes. And the last maybe 10 years, we have begun to look into cognition. And that includes, of course, cognitive disorders of, uh, uh, like uh, minimal cognitive uh, impairment or um, Alzheimer's disease, different forms of dementia. And we began to be interested in looking into something that's been anecdotally reported for many years, really decades, probably, that there is a... Uh, Interesting observation that in Alzheimer's disease, often musical memories that have some personal significance are remembered as sort of preserved. And that sometimes is in very dramatic contrast to other memories um, that are basically not existent anymore or disappear very quickly in terms of within five minutes. Uh, people forget names and environments, et cetera, et cetera. So that became interest. That was an interesting point, and we thought maybe uh, we can also find mechanisms in music that uh, can also be applied to giving and helping with cognitive rehabilitation. And that's how we ended up with uh, work here and at the University of Toronto. There are some great collaborators I have in some of the teaching hospitals. The big collaborator here is uh, the uh, cognitive rehab program and neuroimaging program at St. Michael's Hospital. And so this is where a lot of these, these um, data have come from. What a fascinating story of combining originally being a musician with your interest in neuroscience. And I know a lot of the times when we're doing musical interventions, and I know sometimes I've even said this myself, it almost seems like magic. And I'm so glad to know that you are delving deeper and finding the mechanisms and the evidence behind what specifically is happening. Now, you actually published an article that caught our eye and we said, we have to talk to Dr. Tout about this. It was called Listening to Favorite Music Improves Brain Plasticity and Cognitive Performance in Alzheimer's Patients. Can you tell us a little more about that study? And I mean, even I think there was previous work that went into that as well. Yeah, there's a sort of like a couple of sister, a, a sister studies group that came out in the last two years and they're sort of built on each other. And uh, the first study we did is published in Alzheimer's Disease and Associated Disorders, that's the journal. 
And we wanted to actually see from a brain mechanism point, why are these musical memories preserved? And so we, uh, because there was really no hardcore evidence or understanding, there was evidence, but there was no understanding why music so survives in the middle of a lot of memories that don't survive. And so we did a study where we had people go in the brain scanner, fMRI, and before that, we had interviews with them, extensive interviews about uh, their favorite music, meaningful music, and we created playlists. And uh, these musical uh, pieces were supposed to have some meaningful autobiographical me uh, meaning to them and uh, that they still remember somehow. And so we had them listen to that kind of music, uh, their music, and we alternated that with a control music. We had composed music in similar genres, styles, uh, but that they have never heard until an hour before they went into the brain scanner. So there, uh, there was music in the scanner that they've known for at least 25 years, probably more like 30, 40, 50 years, and still sort of recognize as important to them. And then this alternating with music that sounded very similar in style, but they had only heard it an hour before they went into the brain scanner. So there was a memory trace of 40 years, 20, 30 years, versus a memory trace of 60 minutes. And so then we compared the two networks that sort of emerged from these two listening conditions. And the uh, music that the long known music that created a very broadly distributed network in the brain, what we would call from a neuroscience point of view as deeply encoded in many different areas, connected areas in the brain. And then very different to the uh, short 60 minute, one hour memory trace that was basically just sort of an auditory sensory based network that we saw. And that's the first study. And that study sort of encouraged us to investigate what happens when these people now listen for four weeks daily to their favorite long known music. And uh, so that's what we set up for them. And they were supposed to listen daily for an hour, uh, not background listening, but more sort of focused listening, maybe engaging in discussions about the music with their caregiver. And uh, then we uh, pre and post tested them and also gave them behavioral uh, neuropsych assessments. And uh, we found very interesting things in terms of changes in the brain. Definitely very beneficial changes in terms of connectivity. And also, we were very excited to find in one of the neuropsychological measures, the MOCA test, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test, that they actually improved significantly in the uh, memory subsection. That's very unusual because the um, dementia states, Alzheimer's disease, is an, a sliding disease that where you don't really see uh, improvements, but we could measure a cognitive boost 
for these patients uh, over that period of time of the experiment. Such brilliant research. It's so exciting to see how you can measure the benefits uh, for an individual. And in your research, I remember reading that you had studied people who are musicians and people who are non-musicians. And I, I'm wondering if you found any difference. Yeah, I mean, the musicians were also diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So both had something common. They had both uh, Alzheimer's or MCI diagnoses. But they also had something different between them. The musicians had professional musician careers at some point in time in their lives, and the other group did not. So we found some differences in some of the brain structure and uh, plasticity issues. We did not find anything behaviorally different. So musician brains professional musician brains are a little bit different wired over time because of the uh, continuous practice and performance. Um, but both groups actually benefited, I would say, overall equally. So a music-based intervention, and let's say, as we tried in the study to explore, will benefit you even if you have not played music all your life. So music-based interventions or what we have developed as neurologic music therapy, which is different than music therapy per se, and you can benefit, you don't have to be a musician to benefit from a music-based form of rehabilitation or therapy. I think that's an important finding and an important point is that everyone has a personal relationship with music whether or not you play an instrument. Now you talk about you were using a personally meaningful playlist and even more specifically that was tied to autobiographical content. Can you help us understand what specifically you were looking for? Yeah, we were looking when we interviewed them, we were looking for music that they liked to listen to all life and still recognize and uh, is associated with some autobiographic, autobiographical sort of meaning. And the, interestingly, you get two types of reports. One is music that's really connected to a, an event. Like this is the first time I met my spouse, or this is something we danced to, or, you know, my this is the music we listen to with the kids or whatever. Then there is another type of music that is uh, is reported quite a bit as meaningful. Is music that's more associated with like periods. Okay, so let's say yeah, in the early '60s the Beatles came out, and I love all the Beatles songs, and this is my favorite song, Yesterday. So that is not directly related to, this is when I met my spouse, but it is autobiographically meaningful because it has sort of accompanied my life. And uh, I listened to it a lot during whatever, when I was 16, 17, 18, or what knows what. So those are the two types of uh, the salient music that you get when you ask people about um, their meaningful music that they still remember. And so some is event related, but some is more sort of period related. 
you spoke of the different brain regions that were being activated when people were listening to these personally meaningful playlists. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the uh, I think the control condition that the music that we composed in the same style but only played it to them one hour before they went into the brain scanner and then they played it back in the brain scanner. So they had a memory trace for that music for like 60 minutes. That really only activated mostly sensory region, auditory regions. Okay, so they listened to something and but it was not really deeply encoded across different brain regions. So we are pretty sure that that memory probably disappeared very, very quickly. Now the music, the long-term, the, the network, the brain network underlying the long-term known music was extremely widely distributed beyond the auditory perception, but also, for instance, very much in the prefrontal areas. So these are the executive areas. So this is why we are pretty, pretty certain that that music also was really autobiographically, cognitively still meaningful, affectively, cognitively still meaningful. And um, the other interesting thing is that we also found regions in the brain, mostly subcortically, that uh, are very active when they listen to long-term music. And those regions are usually not very much affected by the Alzheimer's disease process. So there is clearly some kind of preservation or sparing mechanism involved that music addresses and accesses and can therefore be preserved as a still existing memory. And the last thing maybe, it was the lead work before going to, to pure neuroanatomy, which is probably not what we want to do right now, but both hemispheres, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. So our music act, the network of long-term music was sort of bilaterally distributed across both networks, uh, both hemispheres. So I understand that music is activating and personally meaningful music is activating all of these different regions, but how does this translate to brain plasticity? So plasticity is basically a process where the brain, the different plasticity mechanism, but one of them maybe most prevalent is the brain rewires itself. It in integrates and involves different brain regions. And that's obviously a sign of a healthy brain if there's lots of connectivity, lots of talk, crosstalk between different brain regions. So we saw some, you want to call that rewiring itself between the pre-test and the uh, post-test four weeks later. Can you tell us more about how you measure this brain plasticity, this brain crosstalk? Yeah, there are different uh, methods to do this. They're all under the umbrella brain imaging. One of the most prevalent one is uh, uh, functional MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, which measures changes in oxygenation of brain regions. So more blood flow, more oxygen, indication of more engagement of the brain, that particular brain region. Then there are measures to, uh, with fMRI to measure flow of information from one area of the brain to the other. 
so that's what we did um, with that particular study. We are doing, so we used, that was an fMRI-based study. There are other techniques you can use uh, uh, that you can actually image neurotransmitters. We're doing a research study with Parkinson, measuring the effect of music on movement in Parkinson and measuring actually dopamine neurotransmitters. And there are other measures where you don't have to go into a tube, which some people don't find very, <laughs> don't like very much, so where you measure brain waves, uh, either magnetic or electric. But uh, the, the techniques that uh, help us look into the brain have been greatly improved over the last sort of 40 years. Quite amazing uh, what we can do and we could not do uh, just a few decades ago. My head is kind of spinning right now, thinking about the implications of increased plasticity. When I think of a disease like Alzheimer's, that's destroying connections. And now you have an intervention that's showing increased plasticity. Can you talk to us about the broader implications of this? Yeah, the, uh, that's, uh, of course, a big and very, very important uh, topic. Now, we, we are not claiming, and I don't think anybody can claim that with anything, that we can alter or reverse the course of the disease. But we hopefully have some tools, including music, that can change the decline function create and create cognitive boosts. Let's put it this way. And I think we have evidence for that. So we cannot cure the disease per se, obviously, with a, with a music-based uh, intervention or music-based training. But I think we can add a boost function that makes the life of these people that have uh, these challenges, makes them also within the environment they live with and their caregivers, gives them some added normalcy that they usually then they don't have. And that's especially important because a lot of the pharmacological attempts who initially were really considered as very hopeful and optimistic have not unfortunately panned out the way they was were envisioned. So we are still not totally clear uh, about some of the disease mechanisms underlying dementia, especially Alzheimer's dementia, and how we can reverse that with different uh, pharmacological approaches. So this is why some of these non-pharmacological approaches like music, which is a very significant um, sort of language fun function of the brain, then we see that, then uh, that there is some benefit, then this, I think, is at least in the current state, some a, a good addition, a great addition to the toolbox to work with these people and make their lives as best as can. Yes, this is definitely a great addition to that toolbox. And I'm wondering if you found the same positive effects or that same positive boost for people who are living with movement disorders. Yeah, that's actually, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you asked me that question 
because that's actually how we started. We started this movement as August, and as a professional musician, the idea of the relationship between high skilled movement and music and uh, musical training, facilitating um, motor motor development or motor learning. That was always for me, even as a professional musician, that was a very fascinating aspect uh, of my life as a violinist and also understanding how other instruments, piano, et cetera, et cetera, are played. So when I tried to look during my doctorate, I tried to, I was not terribly impressed with the general status of the profession of music therapy. It was more of a soft approach to social and emotional well-being, which is fine. But I thought maybe there's more to it, more sort of hardcore things that we can actually do and help people with. So the uh, I was uh, I studied a lot of rhythm perception and rhythm training and uh, in my life as a musician and. Uh, uh, also, there are obviously some very simple observations. When there is a strong music with a strong beat, everybody taps their foot. So that's not anything that you decide that you just do that. So there must be some physio physiology underneath that. So I became intrigued by that. And this is where actually my first endeavor, uh, trying to figure out what's going on between the auditory system and the music system, uh, the, the motor system, especially when we listen to sound that is musically, rhythmically structured. And we actually looked at a stroke first because a, a stroke patient, most stroke patients have gait paresis. They walk unevenly. If the weak foot leg and the strong leg is a very, as a classic asymmetry of time. So short, long, short, long. And we play the rhythmic music to them, uh, sort of like a metronome-enhanced music, very nice, organized around, very strong metric uh, uh, beats. And they began to walk, actually, in much more symmetric ways with their legs. And we were really very, we were totally fascinated by that, and we were almost, like, uh, overwhelmed in some ways because we hadn't expected that effect. So it told us something. Then we actually did work with Parkinson. That's another big movement disorder. And it has a very different pathology than stroke. And we are still actually doing a lot of Parkinson research with music and rhythm. But uh, so there is a different aspect of music. The, the timing aspect, the rhythm aspect that helps people with movement disorders. So music really is a multidimensional language. Okay, and we are not working with the rhythm and mobility of this Alzheimer's. We're looking at music as a cognitive and affective sort of association that has created connections to memory. So we're using the, we're using the musical memory system, whereas with stroke and Parkinson, we're using the musical motor system. So music has multi, multiple dimensions that can be applied in therapy and rehabilitation. And this became such a strong uh, journey that it basically we had to kind of rewrite the idea of uh, recreate the idea of how to turn this into therapy. 
because I, after 10 years of presenting this in research conferences, um, uh, the medical professionals became almost impatient and said, this is great research and we have replicated some of that. It, it works beautiful, but we need therapists that can actually do that. And we don't have them. So we actually, based on this research evidence, we created, sort of coded, defined, established a field of neurologic music therapy. And uh, music therapists can advance the training into that kind of application of music. But interestingly, we have also a lot of physiotherapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, neurologists, taken that training to learn how music uh, can actually be applied effectively to core functions in uh, the brain and also in neurologic disorders. When you talk about the multiple dimensions of perception and application that music can be used for, what lessons do you think caregivers and, and our listeners could take from this study and implement at home? Yeah, I think that's really very practical and very accessible and feasible because you can basically create a musical environment around your life or as a caregiver for someone else's life. So have them uh, have them engaged in music, music listening, uh, meaningful music listening, sort of, sort of structured, not background, but sit down a few minutes every day or longer, play old music, music they still like and recognize, have conversations about it. If they know how to play an instrument, encourage them, give them lessons, have them taken simple adapted piano lessons or something so they can maintain that kind of part of their brain. Um, so this there is a lot of very simple, uh, very cheap <laughs> ways you can integrate music into your, um, into your life or somebody else's life. We did a study with, um, uh, in Fort Collins actually, I think it was some, some of them must, must have been uh, supported by Banner Health, where we uh, measured and tested Alzheimer's. couples with one person had Alzheimer's disease and they had free tickets as one year for the symphony concerts. So they went faithfully to the whole season, every concert they went to. And uh, we measured pre-tested uh, pre and post-tested them after the season and before the season. And we measured on some very stringent neuropsychological tests, we measured some really fascinating improvements. So uh, the engagement for music is something that you can, even as a non-trained therapist or medical professional, you can create a very, very powerful environment for yourself or for somebody else who's in that kind of need. Now, if there is a point where you want this to be more focused and more, um, let's say, organized and managed in different ways where you think maybe a neurologic music therapist would be good to sit down and go through exercises that are a little more focused. That's also a possibility. There's an academy for neurologic music therapy. Just Google in your browser, NMT Academy. Uh, there are several thousand certified, I think 4,000 or 5,000 certified NMTs uh, in 65 countries in the world. So you can work on this on two levels. One is more 
more focused already, more therapy, rehabilitation organized, but you can also do this on a daily basis and just create a music, a music musically structured environment or the presence in the enhance, enrich the presence of meaningful music in your life or in the life of somebody else. Thank you for those practical and attainable tips to bring personally meaningful music into the home. Before we close today, could you give us your final thought when it comes to listening to favorite music and, and people living with dementia? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I do this on a daily basis <laughs> and research, try to research that as, as best as I can. But the, there is, for me, the last 30 years have been a beautiful discovery. Uh, for the first part of my life was uh, as a musician. And the second part of my professional life was actually how music is a probably biologically hardwired language in the human brain that cannot just be used for uh, cultural enjoyment, uh, but also for retraining the injured brain. And uh, that I didn't know about uh, 30 years ago. And I'm very pleased that we were able to also extend this now into cognition because that is a big, big area of um, need in the society, health needs with dementia, with MCI, uh, a lot of neurologic disorders have cognitive uh, aspects to that and music can be very comprehensively used if it's used correctly. And this is why several times if you need, if you, if this is more therapy oriented, then I think you need to access neurologic music therapy, but if you want to structure this in an environment that is still meaningful and helpful and can make positive changes for your life and for your brain, then just bring music, integrate music as sort of a very important part of your life in some kind of meaningful and some kind of almost disciplined way. And you'll see some, I think, great benefits. Today, our conversation has been with Dr. Michael Tout, a professor at the University of Toronto, Canada Research Chair in Music, Neuroscience and Health, and a fellow of the British Royal Society of Medicine. We appreciate you helping us untangle personally meaningful music, brain plasticity, and Alzheimer's disease. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Tout. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation and uh, I hope there's a positive message that came out of all of this and as out of this uh, research, which is really the purpose why we are doing this. Well, we appreciate you so much and thank you to your research teams and to all of your research volunteers and the participants. We believe so much positivity will come from this. And thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast. I'm looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com. Mm-hmm.